Chatua Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this episode, I'm joined by retired Chief Superintendent Mark Jones to share the history of Jaguar on the police force. JECpodcast.com Hello, I'm Wayne Scott and welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Hope you're keeping well. And by the way, if you fancy getting out and about and using your Jaguars, as we all like to do, in a little bit more of a spirited way, you do know you can come out on a track day with us, don't you? We've got one booking at the moment and have to say it's all filling up rather quickly so if you want to get involved with this now is the time to book. It's at Blyton Park which isn't as far away as it sounds. It's just up the A46 basically in Lincolnshire. The ideal venue by the way if you've never done a track day before. Honestly you need another tank of fuel before you hit anything if you're to come off the track. So a brilliant place for novices to have a go at track days for the first time. Also a brilliant place if you've got a very classic Jaguar, one of the older cars. It's a very kind and safe circuit on the car. It's at Blyton Park. We're booking it up now. Don't miss out if you fancy coming and joining us on one of our legendary track days here in the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. All the details can be found via jc.org.uk. Just click the events button there and you'll find the links to go and purchase your tickets. And join us for a day out exploring the performance potential of your Jaguar in a perfectly safe environment. jc.org.uk. Click events book it now brilliant interview coming up on this week's podcast really really interesting actually and a little bit of jaguar history that we don't often cover it's very little known actually some of this and we have chief superintendent now retired mark jones with us to talk about jaguars in the police force and he gives some really interesting insights including a funny story about how they used to tail jaguar test drivers as they left browns lane just to make sure they were behaving it's all on the way next after our hall of fame with richard west motorsport heroes with richard west's hall of fame well, on this week's Hall of Fame, it is you, well, the listeners that have suggested our next inductee. And we always like to say that the podcast is directed by you. We just make it happen. And indeed, Colin Porter, in charge of JEC Racing, came up with this name. And uh, I have to admit, Richard, it's a name I had heard before, but I have to admit, I didn't know anything about his life story. But it is a fascinating life story. It was called Archie to his friends. Archie Scott Brown, and we mustn't hyphenate the surname, we're told, but apparently on the day we're recording this, the 13th of May, that was his birthday. Tell us more. It was. He was born in 1927, Wayne, and in fact, you know, this has probably been the most challenging one because many of the people we talk about, I've had the great fortune to know or know of, and when Colin suggested Archie Scott Brown, or William Archibald Scott Brown, as his full name was, I really had to go away and do some research. Ian Young once mentioned him to me, the former journalist, and also Innes Ireland, who I used to see frequently in, in the pit lane in the early 80s, talked about him. And of course, when Colin suggested him, those memories all came flooding back. He was an incredible man because his mother um, contracted rubella or German measles when she was pregnant with him. And Archie was born... Um, it's an interesting one. If you go back into the history and you read some of the other articles from sort of mid-80s, uh, people talk about his disability. He never considered himself um, to be disabled. He he had a full-length male torso, but he had very, very short legs. And when he was born, 
he had you know very severe defamation to his feet and he was also born missing his right forearm he just had like a, a thumb and a palm of a hand and his parents obviously were also from racing stock his father um who, after whom he was named was a works elvis driver and his mother raced twice at Brooklands, although looking back, uh, she didn't approve of him at all going into racing. But he underwent some 22 operations over a, a two-year period, and he spent many, many months in plaster until he was able to walk. And he was apparently, depending on you know where you read, he was between five feet and five foot and one inch tall. So an incredibly good-looking guy. If you look him up on some of the amazing pictures that are on the internet, you'll see he was a really striking-looking individual. And he was described by a number of people, including Fangio and Sterling Moss, as a man who everybody loved, and he always had a smile on his face. But he won 71 races. He had 34 second places, and he had 12 thirds in his career, although he only ever did one Grand Prix and uh, two sports car races. So an amazing character. Well, we're familiar with the stories in modern-day times of people like uh, Robert Kubica and of course most recently Billy Munger who have campaigned on the behalf of even Lewis Hamilton's brother in fact campaigned on behalf mm. of disabled drivers and getting more disabled uh, participation in motorsport but mm. Archie Scott Brown was doing this campaign way back in the 50s after he lost his license I understand he did indeed um it, it was a, a difficult time because clearly in those days, you, you know, the Sterling Moss once said to me, in those days, sex was safe and motor racing was dangerous. But with all joking aside, he went to uh, race at Snatterton, I think it was in April 1954, and one of the teams there noticed he had this um, unformed right hand and brought it to the attention of the race stewards. And uh, he was banned from motor racing, which was a devastating blow to a, a truly talented up-and-coming racing driver. And it brought his career to, to a sudden halt. And in fact, it was Earl Howe, the president of the British race, uh, BRDC, British Racing Drivers Club, who I think had seen him racing sometime previously. And he made a, a serious effort to find out who he was. And in fact, a name that will mean something to a great many people, Gregor Grant, the then editor of Also Sport, after whom the Gregor Grant Award is now awarded each year at the annual Autosport Awards Dinner in London. Um, he and um, a, a Dr. Benjafield took it back to the RAC, and in 1954, I think it was mid-year June, Scott Brown actually was given his licence back, and he was allowed to race again, much to everybody's delight. Well, 1954, a pivotal moment because, of course, that was the year that Lister was formed and Brian Lister, it sounds like he quickly got wind of the talent that Archie Scott Brown had to offer and he ended up driving one of his new cars, which was, of course, the famous Lister Nobly, so-called because of its mm -hmm. bulging, flowing bodywork. It was actually a redesign for the uh, 1957 season of the Jaguar D-Type, of course, that Lister had undertaken. And uh, he was one of the drivers of one of these cars. He was indeed, and in fact, you're quite right. He was very closely linked with Brian Lister. I think initially he drove, um, I, I always struggle with the pronunciation of it, although I'm familiar with the car, the Tajiro Special. And in later years, of course, he then drove the cars that bore Lister's name in their own rights. Um, the Nobles, as you rightly say, he was known very, very much for his particularly sideways style. And on occasions, he apparently was shown a pit board to ask him to drive less sideways and he said he did it because it entertained the fans so much 
But of course, as soon as he took off the sideways attack, he became even quicker. And when you when you listen to some of the or you read some of the quotes, people like Sterling Moss said, you know, he was he was more capable with one arm than most drivers were with two. And Fanjo said one of the most talented drivers he'd ever seen in a racing car. And there was a, there was apparently a remarkable moment when uh, in one of the nobblies he was running out of brakes very rapidly. And when he came in, a journalist said to him at the end of the race, um, you know, are you at risk of losing the listers' brakes completely? What would you do? And he responded, well, we'll just carry on without them, of course, old boy. So he was one of those generation of drivers that we talked about recently where, you know, that post-war period, these guys had immense talent. But, of course, with Scott Brown, he also overcame immense physical difficulties to become an incredibly quick driver. Well, sadly, his career was short-lived uh, when he had an accident at Spa, and it was an incident involving a very, very heated exchange on track, wasn't it? Tell us more about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if I'd describe it as heated. I would think, you know, what we're seeing in, in motorsport today is some of the battles that are developing between Lewis Hamilton and, you know, Verstappen are very reminiscent. Bernie, I think, quoted, it's good to see two guys, you know, at the same eye level again in Formula One. And I think at that time, Scott Brown had developed um, a very a very competitive, but I'm told and what I've read, a very good-natured rivalry with the rising American driving star, which was Mastin Gregory, of course. And the two of them traded places on the track, um, you know, regularly. And um, on the 18th of May, 1958, uh, the teams were racing at Spa, Spa Francorchamps, the circuit we all know and love so well. And he was driving his list of Nobley and he was dueling quite, you know, seriously for the lead with Maston at that time, who was in the Curia Costas, the Jaguar. Um, they swapped uh, they swapped leads several times in the early laps of the race. And it's reported that in actual fact, the nose on Scott Brown's car was actually damaged where he sort of tapped the back of Maston's car, you know, trying to get past him. But on lap six, um, Blanchemont, uh, that you know incredible corner there, which in those days was known as the clubhouse bend, which is interestingly, of course, where Richard uh, Richard Seaman had died in '39, the the track was damp and the car slid wide. And previously, on, on the day before, interestingly, one of the other competitors had actually said, you know, there's a, there's a, a a signpost at the side of the track, and it's in a particularly dangerous place, and the organisers you know, refused to move it. And of course, of all things, as the car clipped that particular signpost, it folded up. Um, the track rod on the side of the car and led to a uh, an absolutely disastrous accident. Scott Brown's car went down the uh, the embankment because, of course, in those days there was no barriers or anything. It slid down and it turned over, and uh, quite a bit of the car had magnesium components. The fuel cell ruptured and the car was engulfed in flames. And although a very brave local gendarme pulled him from the wreckage, he was taken um, immediately to hospital. But the following day, with his father by his side. Uh, less than a week after his 31st birthday, sadly, he succumbed to his injuries. But a remarkable individual. And one particular piece of research I did, somebody said, well, when you think of Jim Clark and Sir Jackie Stewart and the great um, Colin McRae, isn't it a shame that more and more people don't recognise Archie Scott Brown as a man who, in that very short time, won 71 races in, in what was an amazing career for a man with his challenges that he faced in life? 
Absolutely. He would have overcome a lot more than most drivers to have got into the seat that he had uh, with the Lister Nobley. But, um, I mean, you mentioned his father was at his side when he passed away at just the age of 31 there. Um, Incredibly short life. But his father and indeed his mother were both from racing stock, weren't they? Incredible. Yes, indeed. As we just touched on earlier, I mean, um, uh, mother apparently raced at Brooklands and father was a works Elvis driver. And I think when you look back, and I, I, when I used to do tours of the Williams um, Training Centre or Conference Centre, you look at the pictures on the wall and there you have Keke Rosberg, whose son, of course, was Nico, and you have Nigel, whose son's competed successfully. You have Jacques Villeneuve and you just keep on going and then you look at Nelson Piquet and you think that it's got to be in the blood, hasn't it? And uh, obviously from his parents, Archie, although his mother, as I said at the beginning, didn't approve of him taking up racing, I think there is definitely something in the blood of those sons and daughters of those people who have become in their careers such amazing racing drivers. Well, fantastic. It's great to have uh, honoured him on what would have been his birthday uh, today, what would have been uh, 94 today. An unsung hero and a very, very worthy inductee to the JEC Podcast Hall of Fame, Archie Scott Brown. Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Well, on this week's Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, an interview of a different sort, and we're going to be looking at a really interesting, well, I hope you'll find it interesting, element of Jaguar history. And if you go back to the 1960s, of course, the Mark II saloon became synonymous with, well, bank robberies. And of course, the police had to get Mark IIs to keep up with those criminals. One of those people that has worked with Jaguars throughout his policing career and can tell us all about Jaguars in the police force over the last 30 years is Mark Jones or should I say Chief Superintendent Mark Jones because that was the rank that you retired from wasn't it Mark? Yes it was indeed by the time that I finished I retired in 1990 and had had the good fortune of of being a police traffic officer a PC a sergeant then an inspector chief inspector and right up to superintendent which was uh, which was quite a privilege. So take us back to the very early days then, where it all came from for you. What made you want to join the police force and what really got you into the career? Well, I suppose back in the late 1950s, um, a lot of youngsters who might have thought about a police career were influenced by Z cars and the Ford Zephyrs. But in actual fact, for me, it was slightly different. My dad had a, a public house in Sutton Coalfield, which was right opposite the police station. And in those days, the, the police cars, and there weren't very many of them about, but the ones that they got were actually the, the black Jaguar Mark Vs. And I can remember as a child watching them coming up and down and going into and out of the station um, and being very impressed by these uh, these gentlemen. Some of them used to wear actually jodhpurs in those days because sometimes if they weren't in the car, they were out on a motorcycle. Um, my father actually bought a, a Mark V as well, uh, not long after that. And... Um, and that furthering uh, got me interested and and um, actually about uh, by the mid 1960s when those mark twos were then starting to come into the, the 240 and the 340 range were starting to be used by the police i actually started as a police cadet to sit in the back seat and then eventually in the front seat um of of, of those excellent cars the initial ones being black of course but soon 
all white and the big police sign all down the side i sort of jokingly talked about the mark ii and uh, the way it got uh, sort of tagged onto this stereotype of bank robbers but actually they were very important police cars in the 60s and in fact it was one of your first cars that you drove first jaguars at least in the police force wasn't it well yes indeed i mean i actually started driving uh, in about late 1969 and, and by that time we'd actually bought both E-Reg 66, 67 Mark IIs. In Warwickshire, it was actually the 340 range that we went for, which, as you may know, was a, a 3.4 um, engine, about 210 bhp. And in, in those days, considered pretty quick. And uh, I was looking at some press cuttings recently of the a number of those cars, those G-registered cars, including the ones that um, that, that I used to drive, uh, they they sold for the princely sum of fourteen hundred and forty two pounds. I see from that, hmm. and and according to uh, the, the claim, they were claiming about one hundred and twenty three miles per hour. Although I, I seem to remember we got them to do a little bit quicker than that, to be perfectly honest. Not <laughs> um, to sixty and about eleven point nine, which was pretty good, yeah. um, and, uh, and and not a bad car all round. In fact, it, it was probably my favourite of, of all the cars I drove during my career. Just to sit in those cars and press that starter button, and then as a young twenty one year old go out and onto the road was was, was quite a, an impressive thing and something I've really enjoyed. I can imagine. How did they survive police life, those saloons? Because you kind of think of them now as fairly delicate, pristine classic cars. But when they were out on the job, did they were they robust? Did they stand up to the punishment they must have got being on the force? Well, yes, they, they, they were pretty good. I mean, in the early days, some of the servicing was done by the dealerships, but some of them were also done by the county transport repair depots. So um, actually, they, they had to be pretty um, pretty um, reliable in order to, uh, to to sort of stand the test of time. And of course, we did put quite a bit of kit in the back of the cars. Uh, in Warwickshire, we actually managed to get all the kit we needed into the boot, though I know in some forces in the Midlands, they actually took the back seat out in order to put some additional uh, equipment in there. My overall memory was that, A, they were very quick and, and did everything we wanted. Sometimes they weren't that, that stopping them could be a little bit of a problem at times. Um, but uh, but overall, they, they were extremely good. Um, the other interesting thing about them, of course, in those days, um, the tri police traffic cars were one of the only methods of, of uh, actually speed enforcement. And um, the the JAG had a, a central speedometer uh, and... and in order to prove the, the case, you had to have corroboration of usually two officers. So you had the unusual situation if you were checking a speeder in the JAG, um, in the 3.4s, of the observer leaning well across in, while you were holding a constant speed behind the offending vehicle for a, at least three-tenths of a mile, you'd got the observer leaning across so he could be corroborating that as well. Um, so that that could be quite a quite an interesting sort of experience. Mm. Was there any bank robbers you met that you had to chase <laughs> uh, with well, Mark I, Twos? Well, yeah, I mean, as far as bank robbers are concerned, <laughs> we obviously did an awful lot of calls. Our patch at Sutton Coalfield went right from the Staffordshire border up at the place called the Moorcroft on the 452 and as far south, right down to the Coventry city border at Alsley. Uh, and it wasn't unusual to, to do, you know, 120, 130 miles in a tour. And, and particularly if we were busy, you could do that distance up and down two or three times. 
Um, one of the one of the interesting chases, of course, that we used to get up to um, in those days was um, with regard to the Jaguar tester drivers coming out of Browns Lane. Um, so we we used to shadow them quite often from from Alsley down the A45, the Meriden bypass, the Stonebridge and back, just to make sure, of course, that they weren't pushing too far over the limit. I mean, I think they were usually pretty pretty keen to spot us in the rearview mirror, and they were pretty glad if we decided that we were going to head back up to Castle Bromwich and out of the way <laughs> or back into Coleshill and not bother them too much on the uh, on, on on the A45. But uh, as I say, those those early um, three point three point fours were were a nice piece of kit i really enjoyed driving those some forces um had the 3.8s uh, and, and i know that the met around about that time were quite keen um they were looking at the jaguar s types uh, particularly in black mm -hmm. and i think uh usually with the met they were quite keen to take a lot of autos as well ours were manuals and we were quite happy with that at that stage it risks being a bit of a sort of fisherman's tale i suppose and it's one we've heard a lot that you know, the police got hold of those Mark IIs in order to keep up with all the criminals that had picked up using them. Um, from your experience, was that the case? Were there a lot of criminals using these cars at the time? I'm, I'm not quite sure that that's quite... I think that might be sort of something that comes out of some of the 1970s and 80s police programmes. You know, you, you, you could usually tend to see in, in those old programmes that we all perhaps, perhaps love, like the Sweeney, that... If, if the Jaguar came into view, you knew it was going to be the baddies. <laughs> um, and, and, and it was going to end up driving across a, some sort of rough ground and probably end up hitting something before they all sort of spilled out. Um, we were more than happy that we could keep up with, with what we needed to. Of course, most of the cars in those days were, were a lot uh, smaller and a, and a lot slower, I'm glad to say. But uh, it, it was an excellent piece of kit. I mean, we, we really, really like using them and probably it was only the fact that towards the back end of the 70s um the, the the production dropped off a bit and and we moved on to to other manufacturers who again locally i mean we moved from jags to the triumph pi predominantly or or some rovers for general traffic work mm. but i think the the big difference of course in the 70s for a lot of forces and for jaguar was the introduction of the motorway network, which was then obviously expanding quite considerably. And that became the sort of niche market for Jaguars then for the next decade at the very least. So what followed the Mark IIs then as you headed through the 70s and towards the 80s? What was the next Jaguar that was pressed into service? Well, well, well really, um, in 1970-71, of course, the Midland Links Motorway Group sort of opened up in the midlands joining up the m the bits of the m6 and the m1 and the aston expressway and um the, the jaguar sales to the police service generally um and particularly from warwickshire's point of view tended to tail off we always kept at least two or three within the department i mean we were only a relatively small force of course um but we'd always got two or three but um i think it really hit the doldrums a little bit um for about probably, oh, I would say about eight, eight years or so, um, when there was always a Jaguar at one of the bases, but of course uh, they weren't that um, flexible off-road and the competition from Rover with the P6s and, and then Ford Granadas and, and the PIs tended to monopolise the fleet until about 79, I would say. Um, but, but then it really took off again. Um, and I think the the reason for that was 
that was I think the era that John Egan came to Jaguar mm -hmm. and I, I'm aware of a number I, I, I by that time had taken over the motorway unit for Warwickshire um, and um, we were approached uh, and I'm sure you probably know a guy called George Hind who was in the assembly development at Browns Lane at that time yeah. um, was was tasked to look at um, the series three which was coming online from memory about 78 79 I think mm -hmm. and with a specific look at um, what was going to go in the car and how it was going to be specced particularly and adjusted for police usage and uh, several of my guys used to we one of our bases uh, at, was at Corley motorway post we had obviously bottom of the county at rugby we got some officers there we got officers up at Colesill and also at, at Corley so it was only just down the road to pop to the factory and what happened was we were then actively involved in developing that police spec quite extensively. Yeah. What sort of kit would be used, where the radio might fit best, what the performance was like. And they gave us, um, I think it was two two cars then um, initially, and, and they never went cold. We weren't even um, really supposed to open the bonnet and look underneath. Um, any problems, it was straight back to Browns Lane. We were very pleased to participate in it, and I think both we and other forces around the country benefited from that as well. Mm. Um, not not just in terms of the police kit. I mean, I, I was um, reminiscing with a colleague of mine recently, and he was pointing out, for example, they, they found that we were running them literally seven days a week, 24 hours a day, one crew would get in and another one would 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 take, sort of take over as the other ones got out found things like the the there was an overheating problem um that was was occurring when they looked at it it actually turned out that the the thermostat rod was a little bit too short to actually function correctly All right um so so we we got that sort of thing we we were actually also able to tell them well this perhaps is the best place where you fit our radio equipment so that it's not just accessible to the observer, but it's also accessible to the, if, if you do have to single man or, you know, there's a problem like that. So, so th the things were, were reachable as well and do the adjustments accordingly within the fascia or, or with, within the lining. Uh, and, and that was, that was really, um, a, a, a good lesson as well that, that the manufacturer was, willing to listen and adjust and take account of the user mm -hmm. and, and that wasn't always the case from my experience as far as other manufacturers w were concerned yeah i was uh, going to ask that what process do you go through to find a manufacturer to supply cars because you know on the one hand it's great that um jaguar were there with our british police force and you know we should be supporting british brands but on the other hand you do need a car to do the job don't you so what was the selection process like was there a sort of team that sat around and looked through car magazines to see which would suit how did you start well, well it, it, in the old days it could be very much down to senior officers preference and, and people would come up with ideas and, and and certainly in the 60s and 70s a whole range of, of mainly uk manufacturers were involved in that and as i say locally we were using triumphs we were using rovers we worked with rover as well on developing obviously again from the 70s the, the classic range rover um was it was the mainstay of, of of the load carrier for the motorway fleet alongside the jaguar as the enforcement car uh, we used the p6s and and then some of the other manufacturers particularly obviously ford Vauxhall 
in the in the in the seventies and the eighties triumph to an extent as well, uh, were vying for that business. Um, the Home Office started then to get actively involved and started to draw up an extremely complex and detailed um, list for which manufacturers then had to compete. And by the time you got to the 80s and certainly into the 90s, that was that was an extremely complex process. One of the key things, and I, I think from Jaguar's point of view as well, was they recognised the need to involve the 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 end user um and and people like um gavin thompson who you may remember who who was the um police and emergency service sales guy um would go around the country taking the demonstrators placing them and and getting the feedback and the evaluation um which, which was excellent and and but the competition was pretty fierce um we as a result i think of the fact that Jaggy was on the doorstep were keen to keep that strong link certainly as far as the motorway was concerned and so that when um i, I, I think the uh the xj40 was starting to come online um we built on the experience that we'd had with the three series mm -hmm. we also um used extensively local other manufacturers um in terms of police equipment um like the light bars and the sound systems this is the time when we were changing from probably rotating beacons mm. and uh, local forces for example might be putting additional small red lights on the rear or the boot and and if you look through the photo albums of police cars in that era you can see all sorts of interesting combinations as locally sometimes with the manufacturer's input and sometimes not um, the, the, there was an, an emphasis on, on increasing the both the visibility and and the, the the warning equipment and sort of everything else um and i've seen some some quite interesting pictures of of, of um a three series with extra red lights at the boot um so that if the boot came up obviously the the light bar on the roof would be, could be obscured or right. the blue beacon so so again that was the sort of thing that we my crews were speaking to George about so you could and also um, locally in, in Warwickshire um, one of the main well the UK distributor for one of the big American companies a company called Whelan uh, Whelan who make light bars and sound systems and um, moving on of course from what we'd had before which was two-tone horns and um, and probably rotating beacons so, so you could get a whole package of, of a car uh, that linked both the user's needs, the fleet manager's needs for economy, um, because again, economy, particularly with a, with a with a three series, um, which which was a bit thirsty, um, with the big dual tanks and everything, um, you had to have a balance there to make the whole package cost effective, mm -hmm. um, and have the sales back up. I, th I think over about that period, the the. Um, Jaguar did pretty well, uh, and as I say, both in terms of after sales and the, the 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 other important thing was convincing the dealer network of the fact that we needed to have um, a degree of priority um, wherever possible. How valuable was it to a company like Jaguar the police contract? What sort of um, contribution to their bottom line would it have made? Do you know the budgets that were behind this at the time? As far as the company is concerned, I, I, I'm, I'm only aware of what I, at that stage I, I was 
in the middle of the organization in the 80s so um i was responding to what i was getting from um, from senior management but it was quite clear that there was a strong emphasis on a link between the company as a local manufacturer a local employer to to uh, um to, to politically look at this and the the feeling that one get was that it was important to jaguar in terms of prestige mm. i mean i've got some lovely pictures of a three series which were taken on some of the um what we used to call the dead section of the m42 before it opened up which went, went out to japan apparently in a japanese brochure for jaguar so i think historically for a lot of manufacturers if if the police are using their vehicles it says an awful lot about reliability and, and i mean that again is something that i picked up later on in my career when i when i was involved with with other manufacturers and, and purchasing ourselves you know. sure well you mentioned the john egan era and it was an era of huge change for jaguar they'd uh, released themselves from british leyland rule and they were on their own they were independent and of course a lot of their hopes at that time rested on the xjs it got off to a bit of a difficult start but then of course tom walkinshaw won with the european touring car championship and the sales picked up for the jaguar xjs but back on the police force they were starting to arrive with you guys as well weren't they yeah i mean the xj40 um, project sort of started about the same sort of time and what actually happened was that there is there is a single famous jaguar police xjs a329 khp which many many traffic officers around the uk have a photograph of in their album and and i, I was interested to see about about 18 months ago i think your your um magazine did a, an article um by uh, another very famous guy howard hunt who was at the factory and actively involved in a lot of the uh, government and emergency vehicles and the police vehicles for a, a long time and in that article you can actually see a couple of pictures of that xjs and 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 one of them, yours truly, is actually standing beside it on on one of the police um, <laughs> observation platforms on the M sixty nine because it it came out again. We talked to them about what we could put into it and how we could make it attractive, and and I think to be fair, it was never ever going to be a really um, viable police uh, enforcement car. Uh, trying to get a prisoner in the back of one of those I think would have been quite problematic but but the impact of that vehicle was significant for us and and for Jaguar as well um, and so I, I was actually I think either the second or third day after it came out of the factory to us on the first loan uh, was taken out and we did the press photographs of it and it, it was a great experience and and the, the reason was from our point of view to capture attention both for passing motorists i mean you you cannot believe the amount of double takes that you get if you either sat on an observation platform or were sat in lane one uh, as the cars came past <laughs> uh, they, they really didn't want to take you on and that, that was good news and i think uh, it was also immediately prior to the motor show at the nec so it was capturing both media attention there um, as, uh, as, as well as enhancing the brand mm. um and, and the good news within the police market, of course, is that the XJ40 continued then for oh, oh, at least another at least another decade uh, in regular use, particularly on, on motorways, certainly in Warwickshire and, and around the country. And there were a huge number of XJ40s, weren't they? And, and because they were such a reliable and bulletproof car, despite what cynical journalists might tell you, a lot of them actually found their way into private hands because the police force actually sort of took the lights off and sold them into the private market, didn't they? 
Well, well, yeah, and I mean, they are, of course, contrary to popular belief, yes, they will have done a high mileage, but they will have been carefully looked after. And, and certainly as far as ours were concerned, a lot of the time we were going backwards and forwards into Brown Lane for servicing as well, which was an advantage. And the crews really liked them for the comfort and, and also the reliability. Uh, we, we tried um, and, and took on as well um, both auto and manual boxes at various times. Um, and as I say, we, we kept using... Um, the the XJ40s right up until about 93, 94, um, when when there was a, a change of emphasis as well, but always reliable and 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 but but predominantly I have to say on the motorways obviously, um, I think some of the things that they needed to do was um, we looked at the sp- or we got them to look at the springs on the police spec and and also the dampers, because we still were putting quite a lot of kit in the boot. Um, it was fairly sensible with that situation then to to make sure you drove it with the kit in the boot all the time because if you took the kit all out <laughs> it became a little bit of a different beast <laughs> particularly if you weren't going in a straight line um but but they, they, they only a, a couple of weeks ago i was discussing on a on a police related page um facebook page which has got about three thousand traffic officers retired traffic officers where um, we sort of banter away and and one guy said oh i remember those jags but but i wouldn't have thought they'd have been much good for carrying the kit but actually they did um and did it very well uh, and certainly matched any of the other um potential contenders which were about for motorway patrol in those days well the x300 that of course followed the xj40 the next generation of xj6 right the way through to when the v8s arrived the x308s at the end of the 90s never really made it in big numbers into the police force did they why was that well the 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 reason for us was quite quite simple actually i i'd by that time um come been out of traffic for a little while and came back in 93 um, and and was keen to look at roads policing generally. Um, there was a big change in terms of what and how roads policing should be being done um, in terms of value for money, and an emphasis probably that you shouldn't necessarily be just patrolling the motorways in isolation. And in in other words, that that, that you know, um, if there was a motorway car available, say at Colesill or or at, at, at Nuneaton, and something was cracking off on one of the main roads, to ignore it would be would be ridiculous. And and th- therefore, we were looking at a, a wider way of policing, and both in terms of our numbers and resources and everything else. So, we'd got quite an extensive motorway network, and we then had to look at the fact that. The, the Range Rovers obviously were the, were the big kit carriers and they probably would stay on the, on the motorway, but the saloons, the enforcement cars needed to be a bit more flexible. So what we then had to do, the, com- the competition by that stage was predominantly Vauxhall and the, and the 24 valve Senator, which was, which was a flying machine as well. It could do everything the Jag could do and, and therefore, and slightly cheaper. And, and that was the problem. It wasn't the fact that the, the um the jag the, the x300 wasn't that you know competitively um uh, inferior but the, the the senator just had that slight edge if you if you were off the motorway and 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 we then were also looking at replacements for the senator um we didn't go down the amiga route we did some evaluations and, and from our point of view 
for our sins, we moved to Volvo and the Volvo saloons and then the Volvo estates. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, again, about cost and, and reliability. But we did keep, I think we kept um, our L-registered Jags right, the way, which would have been, what, L would be about 94, mm-hmm. 93, 94. Yeah, yeah. And we'd still got, we'd still got one at each base and, and kept them running up to about 150,000 miles. Right. And, and and then would go on, of course, and be sold. And as you say, would probably still be an extremely useful um, buy for for somebody uh, as a civilian use. Well, it wasn't quite over for Jaguar, was it? Because then the S type arrived, and I know certainly a number of police forces took that up. I believe Merseyside, I seem to recall, had a batch of S types, uh, and then the X type then arrived, and I guess that was the change because the X type was a far more lower price lower entry price car and that would have made it more accessible on mass for the police force yes yes and and i and i think the other thing competitively that particular significant by that stage a significant proportion of uh police enforcement traffic cars were volvo and one of the reasons for that was rock solid reliability and again Volvo, to my personal knowledge, because we I worked with them on a project which was to do with, you may be aware that, that um, around about the middle, late 90s, the police service started to look at livery and particularly the Battenberg design, mm-hmm. which which you will have seen the yellow and blue uh, big squares. And and I was one of the National Working Party and was involved particularly at Myra with a lot of the um, evaluations that we were doing um, to look at corporate image and sort of everything else. Um, and, and interestingly, uh, Volvo pushed hard to lend cars to to uh, as demonstrators. It also uh, one of the other fascinating things was, of course, the cost of, of, of doing this project and doing this livery, because some forces were spending the equivalent of a few pennies on, on on a little bit of striping down the side, and others were spending hundreds on retro reflective materials covering the whole of the car. And of course, the more rounded the car was, the more expensive the fitting and the more materials you needed. <laughs> right. Now, now I, I know this may, this may sound strange, but, but in actual fact, the cultural change of getting 43 different UK police forces to move, and there were 43 different variations of livery we found. Every one was, I, I don't think we found one which was actually identical in terms of materials, colour, shape, size. Huh. Uh, and so some of the some of the small factors that could often be a, a, even a, an impact. And I'm not I'm not saying that, um, that 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 stopped people buying the Jaguar as they got towards the end of the 90s. But but it was actually quite interesting as to some of the things that, that did start to affect what cars were bought and and, and, and weren't. Um, but the, 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 the good thing, well, the thing that again that Volvo picked up on, which was a Jaguar trait, was to listen to the user and what they thought um, should be going into the vehicle. Um, and and uh, as, as I say, I think um, Merseyside had some had some success with um, with the S types. Um, and and uh, but but after that, it then started to, to sort of tail away quite significantly again, unfortunately. We do see XFs out on the roads with police livery on them now and again, though, don't we? There's a there's a limited number of them out there. Absolutely. I mean, um, as, as I mentioned, after my police career, I went to work for another major international motor manufacturer and was responsible in, in, in for all of their car sales for nearly an eight-year period. 
and I picked up and, and, and blatantly used some of the things that I'd learned 20 years before from people um, like Gavin and Pat Smart who, who, and the way that they approached the police customers and the way they responded to the police customers and the quality and also the feedback from the factory and the manufacturing supporting the customer and, and doing that can actually make quite a difference. Um, and and I, I think that's that certainly was a, a, a trait that I noticed, both in terms of a the, the the car was a great car to drive. It had whether we're talking about the the three point four um, G regs that I started on, or or, or the um, or the XJ forties. It had presence. Um, people looked at it and respected it, and and the manufacturers supported it. And some some of that is is the way in which it was a success, such a success for, for such a long period. I don't think many people will realise just how much the manufacturers work with the police force on those cars. That's a fascinating insight there. So how were they modified? And were they cars that went quicker than you and I, Joe Public, could buy out of our dealerships? Are they modified for performance is what I'm asking. Well, well I, don't, I, don't, I don't actually think so. What you tended to find was that certainly from any manufacturer the loan demonstrators would that you got to start off with to catch your attention would tend to be that that bit quicker mm. um and certainly that was the case i think with the the three series I, i'm not sure what george Hines and his teams got up to at browns lane with those but but they the the, the first batch that we had which were the W's did seem to be just that little bit quicker than the subsequent ones, and I, I, I seem to notice the same once again when when we got the um, <laughs> when we when we looked at, at as I say the, uh, the the XJ forties, but that was the case with a lot of manufacturers. Um, that, that I mean that happened with the Triumphs. It happened again with Vauxhalls and 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 so on and so forth. But. Um, Overall, they pretty much were, as far as mechanical spec was concerned. As I say, certainly there was there was a need to update the springs and the dampers. And I think what they did with the um, with the three series, because it, it wasn't just about the police car manufacturers. Of course, you'd got a lot of VIP cars, and you'd got a lot of armoured opportunities in government sales as well, and things mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. So the, there was that opportunity to look at what needed to be done. And I think that certainly the suspension issues on the um, on the on the three series and probably the XJ40 would have benefited from what was happening with some of the some of the cars that they were doing for government sales um, as well. The other the other thing, of course, that you would find typically right the way back to the Mark IIs was that we didn't have the walnut and the carpets and the leather seats. Oh right, okay. Um, a lot of the well, I, I, I've racked my brains. I, I know that the three series um, from the from '79 were cloth seats, and certainly the, there was the fascias were adapted. Not least because what we wanted them to do was to go from a central speedometer to two twin speed twin calibrated speedometers. So there was a lot, quite a lot of work done on the dash, but they would also put a lot more plastic in and rubber mats and and things like. That. And that was the case back with the Mark. The, the the 240s and 340s as well in the in the um in the 60s and 70s um so so th they were downgraded a little bit in that sense hmm. when you look at policing now and and the roads and the challenges that the police force faces and you look back to that mark ii era do you think the roads are safer now than they were then 
Well, I mean, it's very, very difficult. I mean, I've spent a career in, in casualty reduction and, and, and obviously going right the way back to when I started, it was pre-seatbelts, it was pre-airbags, um, or uh, you know, and, and loads and loads of things. The biggest emphasis on, on re reducing casualties and road deaths and injuries has been the input from the manufacturers. Mm. And, and, and also in terms of, to a certain extent, and I'd use my words carefully because there are some issues that are ha happening currently that I have concerns about in regard to motorway policing and smart motorways. Mm. Um, but um, the, the, the thing that, that we spent an awful lot of time on, really from, if you look back, right the way back to, to the 1950s and the changes in, in legislation and all of the things that were brought in to reduce casualty reductions and make the roads safer, whether it's to do with walking, cycling, um, all of those sort of things and the enforcement side of that. What then started to happen, of course, is you got towards the end of the 80s and into the 90s with the advances in technology, with speed cameras, Vascar and all of the other emphasis that one could, could sort of look at, uh, traffic calming, etc., from a policing point of view, what happened was that they started to use those resources, those technical resources, as a substitute or a replacement for the actual physical presence of policing on the roads. Right. And I think that was a mistake. I actually think that what they would have been would be far more beneficial was to actually use them to enhance and complement that situation. Because the thing that hasn't changed dramatically is driver behaviour. And that obviously is a component part in almost every single road collision. Um, some of the education processes have been very successful. And, you know, we look at seat belts and things like that. I mean, I was heavily involved in a, a big camp, international campaign to do with positioning head restraints back in the um, back in the mid 90s. So th there are. And again, that was supported by the, the manufacturers. Raising awareness of things like that can make a big impact. Mm. Um, but I do think that we could but there is still a lot more to do and, and as i say on a personal basis i have a real problem with the, the the smart motorway the technology just isn't there to actually do the things that need to be doing and if you have the you are unfortunate enough to break down in lane one or lane, well, in any lane of a busy motorway in, in even light conditions then unfortunately and that's a smart motorway with no hard shoulder that is a dangerous place to be yeah, and indeed, and especially as we're entering the electric vehicle era where there is a difference in behaviour and a difference in habits when it comes to electric vehicles and keeping them powered up. You know, we may yes. well see people running out of charge on smart motorways and that may well cause some real issues with that system. I mean, it, 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 I, 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 know what, I know what the political decisions were and why they were made and, and looked with great interest, for example, locally at the... the um, tests and trials that were done on m42 and other sections of the of the m1 and the m25 but moving towards the the, the situation now where it's literally four lanes running all the time and a reserve every sometimes a mile apart at least and, and sometimes more is really not a good idea for, for for any of us regardless of how reliable the 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 motor vehicles are and as you say there are other issues as far as um, electric vehicles and, and etc etc uh, and it's driver behavior that, that that is the thing and of course coming right the way back to what we're talking about the presence of the jaguar or or a similar 
high performance vehicle on a regular basis does have an impact and it does have you know in terms of as a, as a reminder that possibly even a speed camera doesn't it's interesting that because if you talk to anyone who uses the road regularly one of the criticisms of enforcement that many people have is that they feel that speeding uh, fines and speed cameras catch those small indiscretions as they might see them but they don't see the bad behavior the dangerous overtaking maneuver the person pulling out in front of you or cutting you off the things that really cause people fear on the roads when they happen is that something that you you worry about as well well, ab- absolutely. I mean, uh, as I say, uh, for 10 years in the middle of my career in the 80s, I was actively involved in, in all of the national road safety campaigns, which we ran particularly on motorways um, across the whole of the UK, where where we were working with, with Shell and General Accidents Insurance and a number of the countries, through, uh, and with the Department of Transport, producing videos and, and other materials to try and remind people that motorways were the safest roads. and But at the same time, there was a, a need for both enforcement, but also advice um, to complement the engineering issues and, and, and other associated issues. But I think um, it, it needs to be done fairly and appropriately, and it probably in a personal touch as well. That's, that is the, the downside of using technology solely. And as you say, it doesn't pick out some of the other things that, that are going on there is i'm glad to see a little bit of a change going on in terms of road policing and um a greater emphasis on on a broader thing not catching people out who are one or two miles an hour above the speed limit that isn't what it should be about it's about reminding people that if you are consistently driving 10 miles an hour above the speed limit and you are involved in unfortunately involved in an accident then you are more than likely with a say with a pedestrian the chances that under 30 miles an hour is that that pedestrian will at least survive particularly given the um, um advantage well the, the changes that have come about with vehicle construction and the way in which they control but if it's 40 miles an hour that chance is very very slim so a, a te- even a 10 mile an hour difference can make a difference and and if you if your driving behavior is such that you're not alive to that um then unfortunately that's something that needs to be addressed but that's but people are more likely to respond to that through education general education than harsh enforcement um that's the concern for me i would be looking at widening police resources and putting some of these extra bobbies that we keep being told about back into roads policing which fortunately warwickshire i think is is actually endeavoring to do i guess one of the big changes that you've seen since those early mark ii days in the 1960s to now is the amount of distractions now that drivers have to cope with in the car so you know obviously mobile phone usage has been made socially unacceptable been outlawed from from the roads rightly so but also our cars now they're full of gadgets phones beeping social media screens in the car and of course our roads are now littered with even more road signs to watch have you seen that as a had an impact on road safety through the years as well i think it has i mean it is about distractions and i suppose new technology is tending to do to give people the opportunities to to distract um, e- even more. I mean, if you move to totally automated driverless vehicles, is a concept which seems to be attracting a lot of interest, and and, and I, I, I some interesting reservations about that. But um, but yes, as you say, um, 
if I go back to, to when I started as a traffic officer in 1970, um, looking at what was then our advanced driving training, um, we talked about the issue that, that it was about the complete, the complete application of mind and body to a particular endeavour, to the complete exclusion of everything not relevant to that endeavour. And that's, that, that's one, of, one of many, many uh, definitions that we had to learn in terms of our advanced driver training. And at that stage, certainly, it was generally felt that you should, if you were driving, you should be driving and little, doing little else, <laughs> which, which, which tends to suggest that some of these distractions that are now apparent, even, even perhaps even things that we take for granted now, like sat-navs and like some of the other audiovisual stuff, um, is going to be some sort of distraction in some way, shape or form. It must be an increasingly difficult job to police the UK's roads as the roads get busier, uh, offences become more complicated. How have you seen um, police officer driver training change? And give us an overview of what that training involves to get behind the wheel of a motorway patrol car. Well, it, uh, way back, in the, the training that I had was extremely comprehensive. I'd already got, as a 17-year-old, as a my, my, my past my driving test um for both cars and motorcycles but if i hadn't they would have sent me on a four-week course just to pass my test in a morris traveler um instead of that i did a four-week course again in a morris traveler to enable me to drive what we then called gp cars which were again mini pandas or um, hillman huskies or or the divisional land rover um and i did that for about 18 months before they would let us anywhere near a patrol car, we did a week's assessment um, and training uh, with, with an advanced driver trainer. Then I spent three months sitting alongside an advanced driver operationally and, and could only drive under his supervision. And then I did a month's training at Stafford uh, on, a, on a ratio of one instructor and three, um, uh, three students driving all at the, what was then the the regional driving school in order to get um an advanced uh, ticket at grade one uh, and to become a grade one driver you could only afford you did three drives uh, one in the town one in the country and one um it, it, on the a-class roads um uh, and in different vehicles you literally went out for, for an hour in in the one car then you came back got straight into another one and so on and so forth and over the whole three drives, you could only you were marked uh, out of a hundred, and if you wanted to get a grade one, you could only drop ten marks in the whole set of exams. Um, and and if you if 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 you actually missed doing a shoulder check before you uh, manoeuvred from from a straight line to turn or anything like that, that was a quarter of a mark. So you hadn't got an awful lot of room for leeway. Um, I mean that that gradually over the next three decades got diluted. Different forces had slightly different standards, but advanced training usually was at least a month um, on a one instructor to three students basis. Um, and the testing, again, was 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 quite stringent and, and still is. I, I, I think the course is now three weeks rather than four. Um, and you don't perhaps have to do quite so much uh, learning. You had to do a th theory test as well, by the way, an, an extremely complex theory test and some degree of, of, 
of mechanical um, instruction as well. So, so it is pretty common. And, and the, the, the young men and women today who are doing this, doing the same training are, are again, put through the hoop and, and, and uh, hopefully are, are maintaining those standards. Um, but in a, in a slightly more modern, modern way, of course, and, and there are other ways in which they can use training materials, perhaps um, to, to, to assist that process. And of course, that all helps them when they're dealing with being on the front line and motorways, the ideal place for some pretty serious criminals to move around the country as well. So it's not always about speeding and uh, road offences. It's sometimes about catching some some really big criminals, I guess. And oh, oh, uh, no, you're absolutely. I mean, motorway policing through through the whole of my service played an extremely important part in anti-terrorist operations, in major crime, in organised dealing with organised crime groups, and they still do. Um, aided, of course, by things like the AMPR systems, and, and which obviously gives them a greater emphasis uh, and, and ease of access to information that we had uh, back in the day. But nonetheless, they still are playing that very, very important and, 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 and necessary role. The regrettable thing, of course, is there aren't so many of them actually out there on the roads at the moment um, because of a change of emphasis in policing. Was there ever a moment in your career, Mark, where you were genuinely frightened behind the wheel? Um, yes, uh, once. Uh, I was at Myra um, and we were doing a test thing. It wasn't in a Jaguar, it was in a Porsche 911 and one of the test drivers was taking me round um, <laughs> at about 130 from memory and I did close my eyes once. <laughs> it was as he taking his hands off the wheel to chat to me which was <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, operationally uh, fortunately not my instructor did tell me before i even went to stafford that, that i probably wouldn't ever win any races but he thought i would probably get there at the end of the day at least in one bit and and i think that wasn't a bad piece of advice to be perfectly honest well, you've spent 30 years in the police force, as you say, one of the few officers to have been in every rank on the roads. But um, also, I know you've gone on since then to uh, advise Parliament, work for other car brands and also uh, act as a security advisor um, in the private sector. Is it possible then to be a car fan and be a highway policeman? I think it is. And I, I mean, I, there were people who, who I met along the way who didn't didn't necessarily share that view. But I was very fortunate and, and to, to have a number of roles nationally and, and regionally. And, and there were a whole range of people, some of whom who stayed um, at the, the same rank all the way through their service and made magnificent contributions, um, both both in terms of the complexity of what they're doing. And I'm, I'm thinking about people who, who were constables for 30 years but worked extensively on national campaigns on on um, uh, various other initiatives came up with ideas that that um, other people wouldn't have thought of and a few a few managed to to work their way through the ranks as well um, and and kept getting promoted despite the fact that um, that, that they had a great affinity for both vehicles and, and roads policing and, and certainly casualty reduction. Well, Chief Superintendent Retired Mark Jones, what a fascinating insight here on the JC podcast into not only a, a little covered part of Jaguar history, but also an insight into how Jaguar, through their cars, have 
contributed to society. So I think a fascinating story there and uh, great to have you on the podcast. So thanks very much for joining us. I'm, I'm very grateful. Th thank you very much indeed for inviting me. It's been an interesting experience. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Tom's Jaguar Racing Diary. Sharing the knowledge, drama and innovation from behind the scenes at the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club Race Championship. So we've got both cars back in the workshop after the highs and lows of Silverstone and we're going to start prepping for the next round of the championship which is up at Donington Park. So Donington Park is a great circuit and it's one that I really look forward to and uh, it definitely suits um, the XJR um, with a lot of the corners there and we have had some great results in the past. So obviously with my XJR6 we had an absolute stunning start to the season um, with both wins and, and uh, uh, the leading the qualifying. We also managed to set the quickest lap time. So really 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 great start to the season for us and uh, we've now got the car back up in the ramp and we're kind of carrying out a full visual inspection just to see if anything is untowards on the car to be honest there's very little that we're going to do to the car um, before next round we just want to make sure that everything is absolutely 100 percent um, now one of the things we've found straight away um, is the front brake pads are quite low Silverstone's pretty heavy on brakes. There's quite a large stop at the end of hangar straight there, carrying a lot of speed. So did have a little bit of brake fade as well. So um, that would probably be the fact that the pads were, were lower than what we would normally run. Um, when brake pads actually do get low, they often generate more heat than they would do normally because you get close to the backing of the pad, to the metal backing. So often you generate more heat than you would do normally. So that's the only really um, obvious fault we found with mine. Everything else is, is absolutely okay. So we're just going to really go back to basics. Um, I'm going to put the dampers back on the original settings that we had set up originally. I'll then dial the dampers in very slightly in qualifying uh, for the race. Um, we're going to swap some tyres around. We've got another set of tyres here that we're going to put on the wheels and just move those around. And then we've got two good spare sets. We always rotate those around to try and get the maximum amount of wear out of each tyre. Um, and then we're just going to do basic service and maintenance, really. Uh, change all the fluids, bleed all the brakes um, and clutch, etc. So for mine, it's, it's really, really quite straightforward, to be honest, um, which is unusual. So uh, it's quite a nice position to be in. Now, uh, obviously, obviously, as most of you probably seen, unfortunately, Matthew had a, a, an absolute terrible race with with the car catching a light. Which, to be honest with you, I'm still absolutely gutted about and just can't believe really. So we have found um, the cause of the fire, um, and it's it's not something we've ever actually experienced. The the fuel rail itself, where the the braided AN fitting, so the motorsport fitting, screws into the rail, um, has actually has actually fractured. It's cracked completely. So the original fuel rail in the XJR essentially cracked, which um, sprayed fuel on onto a hot engine, which is what ignited the fire. Now. Um, the car looked in an absolute terrible state when we got it back here, um, but Matthew has managed to wash all the, the powder off and we've been able to, to inspect it. And believe it or not, the damage isn't as bad as what we originally anticipated. Although there is the, the engine loom and pretty much all the plastic in the engine bay has melted, um, it actually hasn't damaged any of the major components. So the bulkhead is still perfectly intact in, the intact in the car. It's literally just blistered the paint and it is only really wiring and plastic cosmetic parts that have actually melted. So um, the, the inlet manifold, 
Um, the injectors are damaged, but the inlet manifold's still okay. The side of the block's absolutely fine. We've taken the inlet manifold off and had a look down the cylinders and done compression tests. Nothing has actually gone in the engine. Um, on these inlet manifolds, there is a charge cooler, which has obviously stopped anything going into the inlet, which is which is just absolutely great news. And, and luckily enough, Matthew did actually have insurance on the car. So we're in the process of going through, um, through that and quoting for the insurance company, but it, it looks like it's covered. So that was an absolute great result that that is covered and a bit of a relief from up from our end. So we're full steam ahead, um, pulling it all apart um, in the hope we can rebuild the car back um, in time for Donington. It's going to be tight because we've got to make a, a complete body harness for the car and an engine loom. Um, and we're also going to replace the supercharger, throttle bodies and, and most of the sensors on the car just, just in case they have been damaged. Visibly, they look okay. Um, but it's obviously inhaled quite a lot of smoke, etc. So we, we don't want to risk it in all honesty. So that, that's really good news. And, and Matthew was okay, which is the main thing. Um, obviously a bit shaken, um, but he is absolutely fine and he's keen to get back out of Donington. So we have got a backup plan if, if we can't get the car turned around in time and most of that's going to be governed by us getting parts, unfortunately. Um, so we've actually got a Class A XJ40, um, which is, is the standard class car and Matthew's going to be racing that at Donington if we don't make it. So it's a car that um, we actually bought from, from another Jaguar Specialist, a company called West Riding, and it has been raced previously in the championship and we just thought that it would be nice to, to have a car that we can offer people that are interested in coming into the race series and that have got a race license and just fancy giving it a go so it is going to be available later in the year if any of you do fancy having a go in, in this xj40 it is a class a car which is a fairly basic car but it is all up to msa standards ready to go so matthew's probably going to be piloting that for donnington um and like I said, we're just going to do the basic prep on mine and we've got a lot to do, a lot of work cut out on Matthew. So um, I'll keep you updated with progress on next um, week's episode and fingers crossed we can get it turned around in time. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.